0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well. For those who are joining us online, who might be on holidays, or like my family, feeling under the weather... Uh, we're glad that you could join us in that way. Um, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series, A Great Cloud of Witnesses, which has been all about encouraging us to not only place our faith in Christ, but to run that race He's set before us with our eyes on Him. Um, on that end, I read an article recently uh, that stated that since faith in action is, is somewhat difficult to articulate in a, in a single definition, what we find is that it's, it's often mentioned in the Bible along with the story of someone who's been faithful. Uh, Hebrews 11 is, is a prime example of this as it calls upon a lot of stories of, of the heroes of faith from the Old Testament as inspiration for us to look to God and to His promises through Jesus Christ, though as we'll discover today, Hebrews 11 is also helpful in showing us that faith in action or faith lived out doesn't always look or play out like what our preconceived notions of it might be. And this is incredibly important for us to realize and to acknowledge. On that end, I hope today's story will get us thinking a little bit differently about what faith in action can look like. So. For today's true story of faith is, is one in, in which we find our heroes of faith standing up to fear, and yet the way they do it is to hide from the very threat we're told they're not afraid of. By faith, they hide. It's not quite the picture many of us get of when we think of walking boldly and fearlessly in faith, is it? But yet... It's actually one of the greatest and most world-changing acts of faith in all of Scripture, which ultimately teaches us then the importance of relying on both God's wisdom and His providence as we live out our faith. Let's read from Hebrews 11:23. 23. Hebrews 11:23, 23. Which says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So I imagine that anyone who spent their their childhood going to church, you've probably... Heard this story plenty of times, baby Moses being hidden by his parents from Pharaoh and then placed in a basket in the Nile River only to be found and adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter, who then, unbeknownst to her and at the suggestion of Moses' older sister Miriam, actually hires Moses' own mother to nurse him. It's, uh, It's a popular Sunday school story. But yet, as we dig deeper into the account, we find that the setting is much darker and more horrifying than, than we've ever been taught in Sunday school, because you don't really want to go there in Sunday school. But we find that it's one of infanticide, betrayal, murder, and slavery. And in fact, when, when God had made his covenant to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, which, which we learned about a couple of weeks ago, God had told Abraham that this would happen. He told him that his people would spend 400 years enslaved in a strange land before they would have the chance to enter the promised land. And so this is the setting upon which this story of faith takes place. Of course, God's people, the Hebrew nation, had once had favor with Egypt when Joseph had been placed second in command but over 300 years later, and because many different pharaohs had, had come and gone, the reason for their favor through Joseph had been long forgotten by this time. Over, so over, and over time, they'd become a hated minority and seen as a nuisance, especially because they were taking God's covenant promise seriously and were rapidly multiplying in number. This massive population growth of a people that didn't belong was a threat to Egypt's security and to the current pharaoh's control over them. And so he des- decided to resort not only to harder slavery and making them build cities for them, but also to violent population control as well. Uh, Stephen, the famous martyr from Acts, sums it up well in Acts 7, 17 to 19 when he says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. To be more specific, the pharaoh at that time had decreed to all his people, as it's recorded in Exodus 1.22, that every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this is the setting in which Moses was born into. One of great violence, oppression, horror, and deep fear, especially for expectant parents who were told that if they bore a son, they'd have to throw him into the river. That's crazy. But our passage from Hebrews reminds us, though, that Moses' parents didn't give in to this fear. Instead, they chose to fear God. And so let's, before we go any further, let's read their story from the first half of Exodus 2. Exodus 2, 1 to 10. This is their story. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, his, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So think of this, even before Moses had been born into the world, he'd been sentenced to death, along with all the other male children born to Hebrew women. How horrible a choice that these parents would have to make. Either they risk their own lives by refusing to throw their child in the Nile River, which was hardly a choice at all because if they were caught and killed for disobeying the edict, their child would die anyway. The only other choice was to obey it and give up their child to death in order to save their own lives. In light of the situation, it would seem that baby Moses didn't have a chance. But again, thanks to the faith of his parents, his mother Jochebed and his Levite father Amran, he was not only able to live, but was able to fulfill the destiny which God had designed for him in leading his people out of Egyptian slavery, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. To be clear, their their act of faith was a catalyst for Moses' own journey of faith. And this is an important reminder for us. As well, that when we're faithful to lay down our lives and raise up others or bless others, we're not only fulfilling our own divine destinies, but we could also be assisting others with theirs. We could be a catalyst for someone else's. And and it's no wonder that this is one of the most common instructions in the New Testament, to lay down our lives and put others before ourselves, to build up one another, to encourage one another, to forgive one another, to love one another, to restore one another, to pray for one another, to give our lives for one another. Over and over again, we see that in the New Testament, all acts of faith which serve the other. Because the reality is that God does have divine destinies and callings for each one of us. They may not end up being as momentous and world-changing as Moses or Abraham's, but each of our callings are significant and integral to the kingdom. And sometimes we need that loving support to help us on our way. And that's why I'm, I'm here as your pastor, but that's also what you're all here for as well. We're all here to give our lives for each other in order to help each other find and fulfill our divine calling within the kingdom of God. And make no mistake, when Jochebed and Amran looked upon Moses, they saw that he had a divine destiny and were ready to give their lives to protect it and to see it come about. To be clear, it says they looked upon him and saw that he was beautiful, or that he was a fine child, depending on translation. This could mean they simply saw him as cute or, or handsome, but aren't all babies cute? Right? Or at least don't all parents think their own babies are cute? That's probably a better way to put it. So most likely then, it means that they, they saw that there was something special in him. It's more than just that he was cute. They saw something special in him. They saw, in some way they saw that God had placed a call, a divine destiny, upon his life. And so because of this, and their love for him, obviously, they made a difficult choice to disobey Pharaoh at the risk of their own lives. And for three months, somehow they hid him from the Egyptians. Why three months? Well, it's been suggested that the, the lungs of a baby aren't, aren't quite developed until three months and therefore they don't cry as loud, even though for a, a new parent it seems like they do. But uh, after three months with that larger lung capacity and therefore a louder cry, it would have been incredibly difficult to keep them secret and hidden any longer than that. And so basically what, what they're saying is they, they kept him hidden for as long as they could and then very cleverly. They walked him to the Nile River as if to cast him in, probably so no one would be suspicious. But instead of doing that horrible thing, they placed him in a makeshift raft that they'd made out of a basket and floated him down the river. What courageous faith in God's providence, in God's protection in that moment Right? That, they, they, that they must have had in that moment to let their baby son go and float down the river, not knowing what would happen to him. But as we've seen in previous, previous messages on faith in the series, when God calls us to do something, he is faithful to bring it to completion. Right? He is trustworthy. He can turn it for good according to his will. So when we trust God, then we don't need to fear anything else. There is no fear in love, as it says, and Jochebed and Amran chose the power of love, both for their son and for God, over and above the fear of death from Pharaoh's edict and the fear of letting their son float down the river. As John Piper writes, faith frees us for this kind of radical courage and risk-taking and love because it is the assurance that what God promises to those who die in the path of love is better than what the world promises those who shun risk." and save themselves. More simply, faith in God's promises frees us from the fear of death and makes us brave in the risks of love. So faith chooses God and love every time, no matter the risk or the cost. And because Moses' parents chose love over fear, Moses was then able to go on and live out his divine destiny. But on that end, and, and, and before we go any further, I want to point out that there might be some people who read this story and then argue that Amran and Jochebed, Moses' parents, must have been living in fear, not in faith. Because doesn't the fact that they hid from Pharaoh mean they must have been afraid of him? If they really weren't afraid and actually had faith, some might say, they'd have marched right up to Pharaoh's fortress with baby Moses in their hands. They they wouldn't hide from him like fraidy cats. They would would have trusted in God to protect them from any harm, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Right? I hear people talking like that all the time. And Basically what I'm saying is that whether that, that sounds like you or not, we all, we all come to the table with these preconceived ideas and judgments about what faith in action is supposed to look like, especially in certain types of situations, don't we? But the truth is, and, and what we'll soon discover today, is that faith in action, or practical faith, or faith lived out, however you want to say it, it's, it's perplexing. And it doesn't always look the same every time which means we desperately need to humbly and repentantly recognize that while faith lived out will always align with God's character and his heart, it won't always look or, or play out like what we might expect or think it should in each situation. In fact, one of the, one of the primary lessons we can learn from Hebrews 11, and especially the, the story today, is that, is that for each person and for each situation, faith in action looks completely different. For example, let's, if we open up the open up the Bible, we see that sometimes faith in action looks like open defiance to authority and publicly standing up in the face of danger, like the story of Esther, or yes, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Awesome faith, but yet sometimes it also looks like quietly and removing oneself from the danger of authority, like David running from Saul. Or it might even look like honoring and serving the authority you might disagree with in order to influence it from within, like Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon. And while sometimes faith might look like running into the battle, like David and Goliath and Joshua and his armies, sometimes it also looks like refusing to go into battle, like Hezekiah against the Assyrian army. And sometimes faith looks like publicly proclaiming the gospel in front of everyone, like Paul did, or like Stephen the martyr. But sometimes it's done in secret, like the early Christian ministry in Rome, or like smuggling Bibles into China. Sometimes faith looks like separating oneself from sinful influences, like from Diotrephes in the early church. But sometimes it looks like dining with sinners, And restoring them in grace like Jesus did. Sometimes faith looks like miraculously surviving the certain death of of persecution of a lion's den or from being stoned to death like Daniel and Paul respectively. But sometimes it also looks like dying and being martyred for God's name like the prophets or Stephen again in Acts or eventually most of the disciples. And sometimes, faith looks like God working great miracles of healing, like with Peter and John to the lame lame man. But sometimes, it also looks like simple acts of forgiveness, encouragement, or sharing the gospel. And finally, sometimes, faith looks like standing strong in the face of potential death and fear, like, like, say, Peter in front of the Sanhedrin. But sometimes, it also looks like hiding from it, like Mary and Joseph hiding baby Jesus in Egypt from the threat of King Herod, or like Paul escaping a dangerous city by being let down a wall in a basket, or like Christians hiding Jews in Nazi Germany. Right? All, the examples are endless, right? And, but, and they're all acts of faith. And yet none of them look the same. None of them played out the same, even when the situations look similar. In fact, the only constant in all of these stories was a desire to serve God and to be obedient to his call according to his promise to them. So we can see then that faith lived out, faith in action, is often perplexing. Not all decisions are cut and dry. This means we can't just choose a story in scripture and say, oh, so-and-so did it like that, and so that's how I'm supposed to do it too. No, because every story is different. Sometimes they're, they play out the opposite of each other. Which reminds us again that we shouldn't always assume what faith in action looks like, should look like or how it should play out, or in the same vein, we definitely shouldn't judge or shame others when their actions don't meet our personal criteria or expectations, Right? which, to be honest, I unfortunately see a lot of sometimes. I saw a lot of during the pandemic, too. The key thing we need to understand here is that as Christians, the complex situations or circumstances we find ourselves in shouldn't actually define what we do. Rather, only God's promise and perfect will for us in that moment should. That's the key. We should be inspired by their faith. Not how their faith played out, but we should be inspired by their faith. And we should, and and God's promise and perfect will for us in that moment should lead us. What this means is that before we make any any move in in faith in, in any given moment, we need to first ask God what he wants us to do or say. This is called gaining wisdom. wisdom. And we do this not only so that we're aligned with God's will, but so that we don't mess up and go off and react to a situation or do something in our own understanding and, and end up just doing something foolish or contrary to his will. A great example, excuse me, a great example of this comes from Samuel 30, when um, David comes back to camp with his warband and and finds that all their wives and children have been taken by the Amalekite army. The reactionary and arguably logical thing to do in that moment would be to to grab their weapons, organize the war band, and and go boldly pursue them and, and, and simply assume that God was on their side. But yet, if we read the story, we see that David doesn't do that. Instead, and to the chagrin of the impatient and angry men are ready to get their wives back, the first thing he does is patiently prays and waits on the Lord to direct his path. He asks the Lord to lead him to pursue or not to pursue. This is wisdom. This is wisdom. This is what faith and action looks like. To say to God, first and foremost, not my will, but your will be done. For if he'd just assumed or presumed God's will or protection in that moment, his actions, no matter, no matter how much they might have appeared to be courageous or bold, wouldn't have been of faith, but of foolishness. And on that end, it certainly would have also been foolishness, not faithfulness, if Jochebed and Amran had decided to stand against Pharaoh by publicly revealing that they were defying his edict to kill their son, right? That wouldn't have been very smart. If, if, they, if they'd assumed that that was what faithful living and overcoming fear looked like in that moment, that it looked like public resistance and running into danger, trusting God would protect them in that moment, they, 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 they might have given off the appearance of being bold in faith, but the reality is that they would have only just gotten themselves all killed. Not very wise. Fearless, sure, but not wise. It also would have been a presumption of God's protection. It would have been testing God, just as it would have been if Jesus had jumped off the temple roof when Satan was tempting him to do so. So when we look at Moses' parents, we can see that because of their faith, they weren't afraid of Pharaoh, which is why they powerfully and and boldly defied his decree at the risk of their own lives. But yet by faith, they also used wisdom or sound judgment when they hid Moses in order to protect him and therefore assure his destiny. 1 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love. What's the last one? Oh yeah, sound judgment and sound judgment. So faith isn't simply fearlessness, which we often define it as. Faith isn't simply fearlessness. It's also sound judgment. Again, their faith allowed them to not be afraid, but it also gave them the ability to act powerfully with wisdom and love and to trust that God would come through as they followed him. And he did. He honored their faith. Because not only did Moses then get found in the river and adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter, but thanks to the cleverness of his older sister Miriam, he also ended up being returned to his own mother to be nursed and raised until he reached a certain age. And now she even got paid for doing it. How awesome is that? Which meant that Moses' parents actually got to raise him as a Hebrew, And at the same time, Moses was now positioned to live the life that God had ordained him to live. This was no accident or series of coincidences. This was God, his providence at work through their faith and through their good judgment. So faith then is not only trusting in God's faithfulness and providence, which we see on display here. And it's not only moving forward with boldness and love in the face of fear, which we also see but it's also trusting that God will give us the direction and wisdom we need at any given moment as we set our eyes on him, Also, that we can walk and move according to his glory and his perfect plan. And the good news is that we're told in James 1, 5 to 8, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the gift of faith gives us access to God's gift of wisdom. That is, by faith we can live wisely, with good judgment, even and especially during trials or in the face of fear but also in everyday decisions, too. And while we might not get you know, a direct revelation of divine destiny like Moses' parents did, that's okay, because we have access to his word. We're told what to do. Notably, we have Jesus' teaching, his wisdom right there. We have the instructions from the epistles, and and of course, the wisdom books like Proverbs and even the Psalms, which give us direction and and give us good judgment in our daily lives and decisions. We can also patiently and humbly ask the Holy Spirit in prayer to guide us and work through us. Ultimately, this is the posture of the faithful. Again, it's not to presume or assume or to be reactionary, but to live with power, to live with love and with sound judgment according to God's leading. Colossians 1, 9 to 10 sums this up well for us. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If we want to know, if we want to know what faith in action or risk-taking faith looks like, that is fruit-bearing faith, that is pleasing to God and in accordance with his will, we need to daily be on our knees in prayer with Bible in hand asking for God's wisdom. And as we do this, we can be confident that he will lead us in our decisions and that he will move in us to do what he's divinely called us to do. Let's also not forget, though, that there's always grace when we mess this up as as well, because we will sometimes, but there's always grace. God, in his grace and in his love for us, quickly forgives us when we repent, and in his providence, he can turn all things for good for those who love him in Christ Jesus. This is also why as Hebrews 12 reminds us that we must set our eyes on Jesus Christ as we run this race of faith. Especially because like it says in 1 Corinthians 130 to 31, it is from God that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God from God for us, right? That is, God's wisdom is at work and revealed to us through him, through what he did for us at the cross for our redemption, and through what he's doing us in, in us now by our sanctification. But this also means that to know Jesus then is to have direct access to the wisdom of God. And again, like his grace, his wisdom is freely and generously available to us whenever we ask, whenever we humbly come before him and ask for it in faith. And so then let's ask with faith so that like Moses' parents, we may live out our divine callings without fear, but with power, with love, and of course, with sound judgment. And in conclusion then, just as Paul prays for the Colossian church, may this be a prayer over us as well. Colossians 1 9 to 14. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.